Good morning again. It's good to have all of you here. Um, I, before I start, I do want to spend a few moments on, uh, and I know that um, many of you um, received some texts from me yes, the last, this past week about the movie that we saw yesterday, a group of us saw, um, The Sound of Freedom. You know, I got to tell you, after I saw that film, it made me conclude that about 94.5% of everything else that Hollywood produces is vacuous, meaningless chaff. It's, this is not a movie that, it's not like an expose. Uh, there, isn't, there wasn't anything about it that was sort of uh, sensational. It was a true account of uh, one person in law enforcement who uh, rescued a little boy and a little girl who were sold into the sex slave industry. It demonstrated very well, I think, how people can capitalize on those people who are born into poverty. And when you dangle in front of them what looks to be an opportunity to give your children something more, how evil people who believe they are entitled to your children and grandchildren to make money off of them and for their own perverse pleasures. It's a movie that will, I think, stick with you. It's uncomfortable, but it's certainly necessary. There are more people in slavery today than in all of history put together. Um, the, the sex slave industry for children begins at age two and ends around age 17 or 18 and then they just go into something different. So there were several of you who went with me, and you're welcome to add to anything that I have to say about it. But this is all part and parcel of what is really part of our culture, about how our culture is redefining what children should be, what children should do, and who should have power over them. And you have to understand that if a culture can change the nature of what children are and who they belong to, that within a generation or two, they fundamentally shape the culture and change it. So that's really what's at stake. I'm not at least, I'm not in the least, I'm not even being close to being hyperbolic when I say to you, that that kind of activity in the lives of children and families is demonic. It's just demonic. If you love your children, if you love your grandchildren, your nieces and your nephews, then I would encourage you to see this film because part of the result of this film it seems to me that it's more necessary for churches like ours. So this is what I would like to see happen. I would like to see the, those who went to that film to partner with our missions committee, and I would like them to devise a strategy and a plan about what we can do as a church, just us. What, just what could, it may not be anything magnificent, but it would be something. 
What can we do as a church to combat? I mean, you understand, for example, that when drug cartels sell cocaine, that cocaine can only be used once. But if you have an eight-year-old little girl or an eight-year-old little boy, that person can be used five, eight times within 24 hours, seven days a week, month after month. It's an unbelievably profitable business. So I'm saying to you as your friend and as your pastor, this is a great evil. And we need to find a way to do our part in fighting this evil. Um, There was one other thing I wanted to mention about it that I thought would be important uh, for us to, you know, to be aware of and to do. Now, I mean, just the people who saw it, am I being, am I overstating the, am I overstating the message of the film? Oh, this is what I wanted to say. So, do you know who owned that film for the last five years? Disney. And Disney refused to release it. One of the most, yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt. Yep. I was going to say that um, that's when Disney bought out 20th Century Fox. They bought the rights to that movie, immediately shelved it. So it was filmed five years ago, and they've done nothing but block it for five years. Ask yourself why. I want to know who and why they did not release that film. I want to know names. I want to know positions. I want to know why you wouldn't release a film that could exponentially help reduce the suffering in the lives of children and parents. I want to know. Don't you want to know? It's outproducing Indiana Jones, which is a Disney film. So anyway, yes. You know, it's one of those things where, uh, so let me give you like a, an example. Parents used to ask me, when is the right time to talk to my kids about sex? And I would say, if they can articulate the question, they are mature enough for the answer. So if, you're, if your son or daughter is capable of having a meaningful conversation about that kind of stuff, then I don't know that that would be an inappropriate film to show them. Now, there were some smaller kids that we saw with their parents there yesterday, and the smaller kids that we saw, we thought, there's not, there isn't anything graphic about it, but the insinuation, the innuendo of what is happening is pretty poignant. 
Um, and so we thought that maybe some of those kids were too young, you know, to, uh, to, to grasp what was, what was uh, being uh, communicated. So I want to I read it. There's, there isn't anything graphic about it. It's just what is implied that's really heavy and powerful. Um, so, you know, I, you know Gianna. I don't, I don't know Gianna, obviously, as well. But I know that she's a bright girl. And so uh, she might be capable of, of seeing something like that. Um, it, the naivety that is a part of so much of our young children, our, our young kids today, um, where they believe that they, they know better and that they are immune to those kinds of things is pretty, pretty significant. And so um, now here, here's the other interesting thing is that, you know, you had places like Rolling Stone magazine pillory the film altogether. I mean, if you saw the picture of the dude who pilloried the film, you'd think, well, okay, that makes sense. But, um, but why would, but the, the, you know, in pillorying the film, it's like as if the, the child sex industry doesn't exist. And you just want to ask a person like that, you, don't, you, you really don't believe that it doesn't exist? And that would be the first question. The second is, well, if you don't like that film, then please tell me, what do you do? What do you do? You know, so the film was very well done. You know, some Christian-oriented films are kind of like schmaltzy or cheesy sometimes, you know. This was not that. This was not that. So it was done very, very well. The acting, the acting of the children was phenomenal. So it was just really, you know... Um, I think it was an important film. I, we, we have millions and millions. And look, the United States is the one, it's, 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 if not number one, it's very close to being number one as a point of destination for people to participate in pedophilia. We lead the world in pedophilia. It's a stunning, don't you think? You think we would not be that kind of a country, but we are that kind of a country. And I would suspect that any, anybody that you know in law enforcement could tell you that if they haven't seen it, at fir seen it firsthand, then they certainly know about it nearby. So... I want to know why people resist it. I want to know why people don't want the film to be shown. Uh, because I, it, it boggles my mind. Um, so <clears throat> if you haven't gone and you think that you could handle something like that, I would encourage you to do that. Uh, and to invite some friends to see it as well. Uh, because I think that this film could be a game changer. I do. I think it could be a game changer and how uh, many people perceive it and choose to respond to it. And maybe even, maybe down the road, even create some stronger legislation in that way. Yeah, Ed. I was going to say, uh, the church had a really good relationship with local police. Yeah. 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 So, Ed was saying we have a, the church has a good relationship with the local law enforcement, and we do. Um, and so asking, you know, in what way might we be, be helpful in, in that manner? Look, a lot of these kids need extensive counseling after they've been rescued. I mean, you know, so the true story of the little boy who was eight, he was involved in that industry for three months. You're eight years old. How do you begin to comprehend and to make sense of what has happened to you repeatedly for the last three months? The little girl, I think, was the better part of a year or so is the impression I got in the film itself. So um, it was, um, you know, but, uh, you know, even as I say this to you, it's not like what the way they produce it, it's not like it's unwatchable. <laughs> That's what's 
the, the brilliance of the film is that they can convey the enormity and the, the poignancy of that, that kind of thing without it sort of violating your mind or your, your head too much in terms of it really is brilliantly done. So I would just encourage you to see it if you can and to invite other people and obviously uh, to pray uh, on behalf of those children and families. I mean, a father drops off his two children because they have these opportunities and he's told to pick them up seven o'clock in the evening and he goes back to the hotel where they're supposed to be and there is no one in that hotel room. No other children. Everyone is gone. And he has no idea what has happened to his son and his daughter. So, hope, despair. Right? So, any case. Let's just pray about that now. Lord, help us, we pray, to know as a people and as a church what we can do to help this, to help curtail, to destroy um, this evil, this great evil that is a very much a part of our world, our country, our community. Help us to know how we can be thoughtful and godly, that we can sacrificially reach out and make a difference in the lives of children and families who have been so terribly disaffected by this great evil. Give us your wisdom and guidance about how we can help to have the mind of Christ. We pray these things in your name and for your sake. Amen. So um, last two weeks ago when I was here, we're doing this series on apologetics, which sounds kind of heady, and I don't want it to be that way. We live in a world that demands uh, more in the way of an explanation um, and sometimes that demand <clears throat> is sincere and sometimes that demand is just a red herring. It's not really that at all. It's, it's their way of dismissing what it is that you and I believe in. Apologetics, um, you know, the more I have studied in the past, the more I have attended to it in recent times, it's clear to me <clears throat> that many of us have people in our lives who just need help. They just need to know a bit more, like why is it rational to believe in the existence of God? Why is it important to believe that there is this person named Jesus Christ who claimed to be the Son of God, who came to earth to be punished by his Father instead of us, so that we could experience eternal life. Um, one person that I read uh, as they were talking about that said, look, <laughs> you know, they're just offended by the idea that a person would be required to pay the penalty for someone else. And so they just dismissed it altogether. But the truth is, is that there are some people who are like tweeners and they just need some help. They just need, they, they, they want to have faith, but they need some additional information that would help for them to make more sense of what it is that you and I say we believe in, in what's valuable to us. So two weeks ago, though, as I talked about this idea of apologetics and the defense of the faith, that there are people that I don't think we are obligated to have an apologetic discussion with. In other words, their intent isn't really to learn. Their intent is simply to engage you so that they can, they can convert you to what it is 
they believe. They believe that what you believe is absurd. And they want to make you feel as if what you believe is absurd. And that in particular, in the world of higher education, this is really paramount. That uh, in a world that is uh, polytheistic, in other words, many different religions, uh, it's offensive to them that we believe in a God who claims to be the God, the only God. And they are offended by that. So at least in their mind, we, we, we Christians ought to at least have the decency to recognize these other religions and that these other religions and these other gods are just as viable as ours. So if you are a mature Christian, a devout Christian, then whether you, believe, whether you know this or not, you, you believe in what is called supersessionism, that the Christian God supersedes all other religious faiths in all other gods. That's what supersessionism means. So the text that I used two weeks ago was a text from Matthew 7, 14. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 7, 14, because what I'm trying to do is connect, finish off what I was talking about two weeks ago with today. Matthew 7, 14. <clears throat> now, as you turn to Matthew 7, 14, do you know what part of the Bible, what part of the gospel this particular text is found in? It's kind of notable. I, I wouldn't necessarily expect you to know, but what part of Jesus' ministry is this particular text found in? Sermon on the Mount. So among the most important teaching, so if you were to ask even people who are adversarial to the Christian faith, what portion of the scriptures are the most important scriptures of Jesus' teaching, they would say to you, the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain, which is in Luke. So the Sermon on the Mount is in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. So this is, the very last, this is the very last part of the Sermon on the Mount. And lo and behold, <laughs> Jesus says this. If I can have that text back up there again, that, that would be great. So Jesus says this um, in the Sermon on the Mount, and it really is kind of shocking. Let me see if I can find it here on my notes, because I'm going a little bit... Uh, on my own here. Here we go. So Jesus says this. There. Do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them under your feet and turn and tear you to pieces. So Jesus is talking about a demographic type. He is talking about a kind of people, a group of people who think differently who probably in many respects are unreachable, at least at this point in their life. Do not give what is holy to dogs. Now, the use of the dog, of the word dogs there, is a metaphor. And dogs were animals that scavenged. And they ate all kinds of things that you should not eat. And so dogs were considered by the Jews to be unclean. But dogs was also a term used to describe the enemies of Israel. So there's a double kind of meaning here. Do not give what is holy to dogs. Don't give what is holy to unclean people who enjoy being unclean, who live a lifestyle of wanting to be unclean, who in fact really are enemies of Israel. That's what was being conveyed there by the use of the term dogs. 
And do not give and do not uh, do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine. So the image of the pearl was connected to the image of God's kingdom. So it was often used as a metaphor for the kingdom of God in the Old Testament. So don't take what belongs to the kingdom. Um, and uh, throw it before swine. So swine, <clears throat> swine were considered to be the most uh, unclean of all the animals in the Old Testament. So anything having to do with swine, according to the Jewish teachers and leaders and Pharisees, uh, <clears throat> you could hardly get any worse than swine. So do not give what is holy. Don't take what is precious, set apart, special, designed for a different purpose. Don't take that and give it to people who, are, who live a lifestyle of wanton uncleanliness, who are enemies of who and what you are. Don't, don't give holy things to those people. <clears throat> and don't throw pearls. Don't take the things of the kingdom and cast them before swine, that which is unclean, that which is repulsive. Because if you do, they won't show you any thanks. They won't show you any thanks or gratitude. Rather, they'll use what you tried to give to them, and they will trample you under their feet, and they will make you even more unclean than what they are. I mean, it's one thing to be next to a pig. It's quite another to be trampled under a pig in the filth that the pig lives in. Yes, Barry. Is this their way of saying that some people are unreachable? Are not reachable yet? So I, will, I would say that minimally, it means that there are some people who are unreachable yet, that in that stage or that time in their life, they're simply so hard, heart, heart, heart hardened that, that they, that they have, <clears throat> that they have um, disqualified themselves from hearing the gospel. They've disqualified themselves. So, if you took, if you, so by way of example, if you went to the book of Romans, so let's just go to Romans chapter 1. If you go to Romans chapter 1, beginning with verse 18. So this is one of the great theological texts of the New Testament where the Apostle Paul begins with verse, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Well, you, you can see the, the connection here to Matthew seven fourteen. These They suppress the truth. They're not interested in the truth. They suppress the truth. They're working to keep the truth from coming out. Right? For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. So, so they know. They know. They're still suppressing it. It's been made plain, Paul says. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So there are people out there who know, and I'm going to uh, show, give you some examples of that in a few minutes, who know, but they they choose not to act on what they know. Instead, they still suppress the truth. So 
You remember, and I think this is in John chapter 3. You know what? Keep your thumb in this uh, Romans 1, right? And go to John chapter 3. I think it's John chapter 3, so let me make sure here. Yes. So John chapter 3, verse 1. Now follow me. Keep, keep in mind what I've said so far. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. They knew. Not only did they know, but they were steeped in the Old Testament. You couldn't be a Pharisee unless you remember the entire Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. You couldn't be a Pharisee unless you had that memorized Word for word. You ever see the Pentateuch? What's the likelihood anyone in here could memorize the entire first five books of the Bible word for word? They knew. And he doesn't speak just for himself. This is Nicodemus, a ruler. We know, he says. That you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do. Whoops. Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. So these people saw what Jesus was doing, still did not believe. And these people that, that Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 1 can see and still choose not to believe. So there are those people. And I would like to say, I would like to believe that there are those people who are in those stages or periods of their life where they are particularly immune or uninterested in anything that pertain to the things of God. I have seen and I have heard where people who are that way for a season and over time, the Holy Spirit works in their life and they break down and they come to faith. But then there are those other people, like Frederick Nietzsche, for example, who spent his whole lifetime denying the existence of God. And at the end of his life, with his head rolling back and forth on the pillow, saying, there is no God, there is no God, there is no God. I don't know if this is true or not, but someone once said that that was inscribed on Nietzsche's tombstone, there is no God. And then somebody wrote sort of in a graffiti sort of style below, there is no God, there is no Nietzsche. <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not, but it seems maybe appropriate. So then we go on, verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. I am telling you, this is the whole of higher education today. With some exceptions, they claim to be wise. But they become foolish. And they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, look what happens here. Again, per Barry's comment, which is very good, very perceptive. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. 
that because of their intransience, because they refused to give up um, their rebellion against God, God gave them over. He gave them over to their passions. In other words, <clears throat> one of the first signs, one of the first signs of God's judgment, hear me now, one of the first signs of God's judgment in our lives is that he gives us exactly what we say we want. Right? So you can say to your son or daughter, don't touch that, don't touch that. It's a hot stove, don't touch it, don't touch it. And they keep trying to touch it. Well, okay. I'm going to let you touch it. Then you'll find out. Right? And then they touch it, and then they get burned, and it was only that thing that could make them learn. Is the only that thing that got their attention. So you switch, like in, in psychological terms, we say <clears throat> the extrinsic motivation is if you touch that stove, uh, you know, I'm going to tell you, don't touch that stove. So extrinsically, I'm trying to put pressure on them not to touch it. Outwardly, I'm saying. But when they touch it, then the motivation becomes intrinsic. Ouch, this hurt. Now I'm not going to touch this stove anymore. That's what happens in our relationship with God. That When he turns us over to our passions, then we find out that what we think we wanted isn't really what we needed and now isn't what we want. Hopefully we learn from that, right? That's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. So, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relationships for, natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with men, with women, and were consumed with passion for another. Men, so he's giving examples here of what happens when they were turned over to their dishonorable passions. Men committing shameless acts with men, receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. Then verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to have been done. So in the first part, he gave them up to their passions, to be ruled by their passions, because they would not acknowledge God. In this second part, um, because they did not acknowledge God, he gave them up to a debased mind to do what, they, what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, and things like that. So yeah. I think that our rebellion leads us into this place. And so that's what I talked about last week was I talked about the important, or two weeks ago, was the importance of the, the biblical idea of what rebellion is and how all of us, even as believers, are still rebellious. We're still rebellious. We still struggle with rebelliousness. But the people who refuse to acknowledge God, like Nicodemus and his, his followers, as well as what Paul was talking about here in Romans, are people who want the rebellion. They excel at rebellion. So rebellion rules them and drives them away from God. And so, you know... <clears throat> So those people who refuse to acknowledge God, who at least at this season of their life, tend to reject Christianity based on what they believe to be either like uh, moral reasons, like God is immoral for demanding what he demands and wanting what he wants, or they simply want to rule their lives. They don't want anybody or anything telling them what to do. Yes, Sandy? Well, that's akin to Barry's question, and um, I, I would say, and I think the most generous way that I could interpret this passage is, at least at this season of their life, they, they are incapable of redemption, but because God is merciful, 
and gracious and kind. He never gives up on us. We give up on him. He does not give up on us. But it's the rebellion in them that prevents them from being able to uh, embrace the redemption that Christ offers us. My point is, is that when a person is in that stage of their life, we are not obligated in our apologetics to them. They're, they're just not ready for it. They're just not open to it. And the only thing that they will try to do is to um, debase you, embarrass you, undermine you. That's their only intent. They don't really want to know. Like if I'm talking to, in my youth ministry uh, experience, there were many times when I would be talking to a young person about coming to faith in Christ, and they would say, well, what about this or what about that? What do you think of this? And so I would be able to use various apologetic discussions or arguments to help them understand and for them to get a better grasp of who God was. Because apologetics, excuse me, at the end of the day, apologetics really does address the fundamentals of the faith. And so in, in being able to use, we'll talk about this later on in the summer, it's sort of like the, the teleological uh, argument for the existence of God, the, 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 you know, the argument from design <clears throat> or something like that. Uh, that was helpful to them, and that, and, and that brought them in. But people who live in rebellion have no interest in that. They just swat it away. <clears throat> and they go on their own. Yeah, Marianne. I have 10 minutes left. That's a that's a very good question. And that's on the kind of a, like an apologetic question. There is a reason why um, God seems to have a particular concern for how we raise our children. Because he has designed us <clears throat> in such a way that over a period of time, we, we learn, we are conditioned. And we, in that conditioning, we can learn bad habits or we can learn good habits. And those bad habits, be, can, like good habits, can become very, very much ingrained. So I think there are a lot of people who are like the people that Paul was talking about here in Romans, who have habits of mind, habits of thinking that are so deeply ingrained that it just becomes really difficult for them to challenge their worldview in favor of another. And not only habits, but here's the thing. <clears throat> you ever hear of somebody say, well, you know, they keep doing that. That thing's going to take on a life of its own. Do you ever hear that? Right? In other words... If, if, uh, <clears throat> if you engage in a kind of behavior over a period of time, that behavior takes on a life of its own. And here's what's meant by that. You begin to build other things around that thing. Your relationships, how you spend your money, how you spend your extra time are all built around. So it takes on a life of its own. Does this make sense to you all? I mean, codependency is related to that. Right. So <clears throat> I think that when the, the deeper into your life you go, the more at risk you are for developing deeply held, ingrained habits of thought 
and behavior. And the more those build, the more difficult it is to change. So that would be my short answer, I think. Um, <clears throat> but it's a great question. And so for those people listening, Marianne asked the question, why are people so resistant? I mean, is that, is that why, do, why can't they see it? And you know what? Here's another thing. <clears throat> Pride. Ego. Arrogance. Power. What's that? Bitter, anger, bitterness. Look, there are some of the some of the most convinced atheists in the world, so-called atheists in the world, really are the people who believe most diligently in the existence of God. They're just mad at him. They're just angry. They believe he has that he's unjust, he's created an unjust world, all those kinds of things, and so they're just angry. So they it's not like they don't believe. They just don't want to obey. They don't want to surrender. Uh, and so they call themselves an atheist, but that's not really what they are. So, so um, here are some reasons, you know, related reasons why, because um, I, I want to get to this and then we want to do some... There are seven reasons why the rebellious have no excuse. And because they have no excuse, um, <clears throat> they continue in their rebellion before God. There was a guy named Voltaire who was a French philosopher <clears throat> who wasn't necessarily a nice person, but you know, like just like a stop clock can be right twice a day, so people like Voltaire can be right too. Um, he said, it is difficult to free fools from the change they revere. So kind of like in summation of what we've been talking about, it is difficult to free fools from the change that they revere. Here are the seven reasons why. The seven reasons why the rebellious have no excuse the people who remain in the rebellion, and the people that we are not really obligated to share, to be uh, our apologetics to, as long as they have that mentality, that mind. If they are searching, if they are hungry, by all means, let's have that conversation. But if their only intent is to destroy our faith or the faith of others, then, then you kick the dust off your feet and you leave the village. And, and I've had those conversations with people where I can say to them, look, your, your opinion isn't important to me. And they're offended. What do you mean my opinion? It's not important to me. I don't really care what you think about that. I care about you, but I don't care what you think about that. And so that's a hint towards, you know, one of the, arguments for apologetics that we're going to make called presuppositionalism, but I just dismiss people. I just dismiss them. I don't, I don't really care. I'm not willing to entertain uh, what they're thinking in that kind of a way because they're so locked in. They're so invested in their rebellion. There's no sense in doing that. None. Well, let me give you these seven why the rebellious have no excuse. Number one, and by the way, this is, this would, you would find this, if you were taking a class on missions, this is what they would be talking about. And I'm going to go through these a little bit fast. Number one, the rebellious are without excuse because man is made in the image of God. So, Patty, why don't you act like a zebra? Because you're not a zebra, Right? And you don't have the characteristics of a zebra, right? So, but you do have the characteristics, you do have the attributes of God. And we call these the communicable attributes. In other words, God can communicate certain attributes like love and justice and goodness. So we're all made in the image of God. <clears throat> and so because we're made in that image, we can know 
of God's existence because we sense that imageness in us. It testifies in our life. So that's the first one. And we read in Genesis 1, 27, So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. This is the second reason why the rebellious are without excuse. <clears throat> because the law of God is written on our hearts. So we read in Romans 2.15, in other words, we can know. Everywhere you go throughout the world, there is a sense of law. Everywhere you go throughout the world, there is a sense of rightness and wrongness. Why is that universal throughout all of humanity? Anthropologically, why is it universal that we all have a sense of rightness and wrongness? We may disagree about rightness and wrongness, but there is this innate sense of rightness and wrongness. So, uh, in Romans 2.15, Paul says, They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So wherever you go throughout the world, there is this idea of a conscience. And if a person has violated something that, that's innate, they either um, feel accused, or if they did something right, they feel excused, like they did something good. Number three, natural revelation. And this is uh, in Romans 1, beginning 18, where the Apostle Paul talks about that. But he says, man is without excuse. God can be known through the created order. There isn't a person here in this room, I would, I would, I would bet, there's not a person in this room who hasn't been to some place where there was great natural beauty and you didn't and, and you said in your heart, there's just no way this happened accidentally. God, something powerful and big and supreme had to be behind this. Right? So God speaks, and so we see beauty and we see power. And we see design. And we say, couldn't have happened by itself. God had to do it. Um, <clears throat> so I read this text already, but so I'll move on because I'm running out of time. Number four, a thing called special revelation. So natural beauty, or God speaking through the creative court, is called natural revelation. This is called special revelation that God has revealed himself through the biblical text. So we can know God through this. It's still amazing, despite the fact that we have the biblical text, that the vast majority of Christian, no, the vast majority of theologians about, that study Christianity are not Christians. So they know the biblical text but they would not ascribe to being a Christ follower. But they know, and they are without excuse. Just like the Pharisees knew the whole of the Old Testament, they were without excuse. So special revelation, which we read in 2 Timothy 3, 16, all scripture is God breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for the training in righteousness. Number five, what is called the anthropological argument. Anthros meaning man, the study of man, <coughs> the study of natural man. So the character and nature of God present in all cultures, the ideas of rightness and wrongness, law, justice, love, and truth. These are all a part of humanity wherever you go, the, from the most primitive society in the world to the most complex society in the world. <clears throat> These ideas of uh, the character and nature of God are present. Our societies are built around them. That's how they're designed. Number six, 
the ubiquitous nature of divine appeasement. The word ubiquitous means always present, all everywhere, all the time. Present everywhere, all the time. That's what ubiquitous means. So the ubiquitous nature of divine appeasement. In other words, so throughout the whole of human history, throughout the whole of human history, in every culture and in every society, there are religions that had this idea that a god must be appeased. Throughout the whole of history. It's, in fact, the, the idea of non-appeasement to a god is a relatively new invention. So from the most primitive societies to the most advanced societies, it contains a significant portion of people, if not a majority of people, that say, you know, I'm not, I'm not living my life right. There's something about my life that isn't quite right. So, and I think I'm not pleasing to God, whoever that God is, and so I need to do something to appease his anger. That's ubiquitous. It's everywhere all the time. <coughs> Number seven. God is omnipresent and sovereign throughout the world. There is no place in this world where God's presence is not. God is omnipresent. So people are without excuse. The rebellion are rebellious are without excuse because God is always present. It's not a matter of him not making himself available to us. It's a matter of us either ignoring him or not being sensitive enough to his spirit. That's what it is. This uh, passage from Jeremiah is interesting. Jeremiah 23, 24. Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the earth, the heaven and earth, declares the Lord? God is uh, ubiquitous. He's everywhere all the time. So those are the seven reasons why I, I could say this too. Any major religion that you study in particular, this is, this is what I would say. <clears throat> if you study pantheism, it's this idea that God is everything, which is closely akin to God is everywhere. If you studied <clears throat> Hinduism, uh, particularly when you, when, you, when you study the caste system in Hinduism, it's this idea that if you live a decent life, that you will be rewarded in the afterlife. If you live a horrible life, you will be, re you will be judged in the next life. Well, that, there's something, something, that theme is similar to our theme, is it not? In Islam, it's about the law. And obedience to the law. So it seems as if that what many of the major religions did was they sensed something that was dominant about the, the uh, a dominant attribute about God and they made it their thing. Whereas the Christian faith makes all of that and encompasses all of that into our thing. So let's leave here today then knowing that God calls us to share who he is with anybody who will listen. And that there is some freedom that if we encounter people who really have no authentic interest in knowing who Jesus really is, who God really is, but rather to simply turn our arguments against us to convert us to their own particular worldview, you are not obligated that you can turn that person over to themselves. And as the Holy Spirit leads you and guides you, you can shake the dust from your feet. Yeah, Jerry. <clears throat> Of the unknown God. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, it's just everything you were saying made me 
Yes, that's exactly, you, you, you nailed it. That's exactly what, uh, that why that text was included because, there, because people intuitively sensed something more, something different. And so they were worshiping this unknown God that they sensed but could not put their finger on entirely. And the Apostle Paul simply says, well, that, this unknown God is the God I'm telling you. It's, it's what you've been sensing all along. That's, that's exactly right. That's great. Thank you for bringing that up. Okay, well, let's conclude our message. I, I know that we've gone over, and I apologize for going over, um, but I, I just want to underscore the importance of how severe the dynamic of rebellion is in the world in which we live. We are tempted to believe that people are just well-intentioned, but, but, but just don't know any better. That's not always true. There are people who are really, really informed, and they know full well. So we can't play their game. We have to live our life authentically in Christ. And so, I, I, so, that's, so this barrier to some apologetics is this. People who are highly invested in the rebellion, who will not hear, will not listen, we are not obligated. And so we move on from that. They know better, but they choose not to do better. And so at that point, it's up to the Holy Spirit to break them down and bring them to a saving faith, and for us to be available if and when that happens.